This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'll do something I did recently. I will play for you a talk that I gave at church. This episode is being released the day after Easter, and what you'll hear is what I shared yesterday on Easter morning. Before we get into those remarks, I want to remind you that you can contact me through the email address ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments or any issues that you'd like me to bring up. I was speaking to a listener recently. She asked if I was keeping a list of all the things that I mentioned as being topics that I would return to at some point. I know I have a pretty good list of those things, and I'm getting to them. I promise. I think I'll also remind you that if you're interested in the music that you hear on this podcast, that comes from an album that I recorded quite a few years ago. That's me playing an open-tuned acoustic guitar. And if you're interested in that music, you can find it on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you find music. Just look for the album named Sanctuary by Michael Cantrell. And I also have another album called Invitation. So now I'll turn it over to me. You can hear the things that I shared at Sunday School on Easter morning. Hello, everyone. Good morning. I hate to interrupt all the fellowship. My goodness, it's nice. Everybody just chatting and talking. Yeah, I do want to say amen. This is Easter. In the high churches, they say it. He is risen, and the other, and people reply back, he is risen indeed. Amen. He really is. It's not a myth. It's not a good story that helps us understand things better. It actually happened. And remember, there were witnesses. At one point, he appeared to 500 people at once. We don't know exactly when or where or how that happened, but what a thing. There were all these people that were witnesses then. It was a refutable statement to say that Christ is risen, and there were people that witnessed it. I'm going to talk about something else, but you know, one of the great evidences that Christ physically rose is that Jews started worshiping on the first day of the week. They stopped worshiping on Sabbath, and they started meeting on the first day of the week, a work day. Isn't that something? Something really serious happened to make these observant Jews stop worshiping on the Sabbath and start worshiping on the first day of the week. And a lot of those early Jews were, early Christians were slaves. Slaves got up early before the household. And so imagine them having to meet on the first day of the week. They'd have to meet really early in the morning or late in the afternoon. In Russian, the word for Saturday is subota, which is Sabbath. And the the word for Sunday is voskresenia, resurrection. Isn't that great? They call their... Sunday, the resurrection day. I guess I remind all of us, Sunday is not the last day of the week, it's the first day of the week. And our calendars reflect that. It's interesting, the Russian calendar starts on a Monday, the first day of the week is Monday. And I was talking to one of my language teachers and she said, I don't know why, why is Saturday called Subota? I said, oh well, I can tell you that. It's the Sabbath. So anyway, 
I want to share something that I've been thinking about. All of us, things come up from time to time where we just kind of mull over things or ponder things. And then I realized that it's just perfect for today, Resurrection Day. And I've been thinking a lot about sowing and reaping and the imagery in the Bible of a planting a seed and then a harvest that comes later. And Jesus uses that metaphor, and the Scriptures use that metaphor quite a bit, this understanding that within the fabric of creation is sowing and reaping, that you plant something and later there's a harvest. It's all through the Scriptures, and it is used by Jesus when He's talking about Himself. This harvesting, it's a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus, It's used as a picture for mission work. It's used as a picture of God's judgment. The book of Revelation, there's a harvesting of the world. There's actually two harvests. I may get to that today. There's a harvest of the righteous and there's a harvest of the unrighteous. This picture of the end of the world. And then there's a law of the harvest, which we'll talk about here in a minute, that built into the way God has made this world to function is kind of a law of sowing and reaping. Some friends of ours in Russia years ago came over, Americans who came over to do some work helping orphans in various ways. And John, the husband in the family, said that one of the biggest issues he was running into is that these orphans in Russia had no idea of consequences. They just didn't understand there are consequences to your actions. And he was trying to teach them that if you make a certain decision now, later there will be a consequence to that. Part of the problems with the Russian orphanage system is that so much of their lives are regimented. Uh, We knew an orphan who couldn't tell time. She was 15, 16, 17 years old and really couldn't tell time because she was always told when to get up and when to have breakfast and when to go to school and just everything. She never had to learn that. So there's a consequence if you can't tell time. We would ask, if you need to be at work at a certain time, what time do you need to get up? And she had no idea of what 15 minutes felt like. She didn't know how to look at a clock and see what time it was and think ahead. She just, she never learned it. Something we learn in our daily lives. But there are consequences. And that's this law of the harvest. But I'll start with what Jesus said. And this ties all of these different uses of this metaphor of harvesting together. This is in John chapter 12. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also must be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That is a really beautiful section of Scripture right there. It's really, really beautiful. So Jesus here is talking about resurrection life and entering into the kingdom. And of course, people at this time 
would understand this imagery of seeds and planting seeds and putting a dead seed into the ground. And I've thought about this. How is it that a seed is dead? Because we know there's going to be something coming out of it, and yet it's called dead. I was talking to my dad the other day, and this is on this theme. He was saying, how is it that trees get all the energy to push out thousands of leaves at once when it's the end of the winter? Have you ever thought about that? You know, a tree gets its energy through photosynthesis, through leaves, and yet here it's been sitting dormant all winter, and then suddenly a tremendous amount of energy to create these leaves and push them out before it's actually taking in energy. Isn't that something? Like really remarkable. But a seed, why is a seed dead? And I thought, well, how do you define death? And one pretty simple one is an absence of the evidence of life. And a seed has no evidence of any life in it. You know that seeds, if they do what they're normally going to do, some life will come, but uh, they found seeds that are tens of thousands of years old and plant them, and then, then they start bearing fruit again. Remarkable, but there, there's no life there. Well, it's really miraculous when you think about it, that under the right circumstances, you put this dead thing in the right place, and then life happens. So seeds are dead, and in that sense, for us, death is hopeless. But in God's kingdom, there's not a hopelessness to death. For his people who follow him, uh, we're not hopeless, even though there is death. So this image of a seed falling into the earth in order to grow and bear harvest is this metaphor that Jesus is using for his death and his burial and his resurrection. And he is saying to his disciples, he says to us that he has to die in order that there would be a harvest, a big harvest. But he's saying, I have to die. That's the way creation is. You plant a single seed and then it produces much fruit. He uses that imagery for the kingdom of heaven, like a mustard seed, the tiniest of seeds. And you plant it and then it grows up into a huge tree and all the birds of the air come in. But it's got to die and it's got to be put in the earth before that can happen. And the parable is used by Jesus to teach the disciples three things. First, like I mentioned, is that Jesus must die. Well, of course, we can understand why the disciples didn't get it, because to them, death of a human being is a hopeless thing. However, they'd seen him raise people. But uh, if Jesus is dead, who's going to raise him? That would be the question. Sure, Jesus can raise other people, but if he dies, who's around that could bring him back to life? Well, we know the answer now. He does it. He lays his own life down and he takes it up again. He's also teaching the disciples that God is in control, that there's something built into the fabric of the universe, of creation, that even when there is death, God is in control. He's saying, I have to die. God is in control, and the third thing is his death has a purpose. He dies so that there would be much fruit, a really great harvest. My first mission trip was to Honduras a long, long, long time ago, and we were speaking at a school, and one of the students asked, and these were elementary age kids, and they grew up in Catholicism, so they're 
aware, they understand the stories about Jesus. And one of the students asked, why did Jesus have to die? And I'd never thought about it. I was a young man. I was like, um, I was kind of a young believer. And what came out of me was the answer, though I hadn't really thought about it, is he died so that we could share in his spirit, so that there would be this multiplication of the life that he was living. The fruit of his life is in him. He dies, he's resurrected, and then that fruit goes far beyond just one person. It is then available to everybody. Just like one piece of corn can go in and then, I mean, how many thousands of kernels of corn would come up from that one seed? So Jesus is saying that he has a purpose, but he also uses this, what I just read in John 12, he also uses that metaphor to illustrate the necessity of our death to self in order to be set free and saved and enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that means that all of our current convictions, our understandings about the way the world works, everything that is familiar to us and seems right to us, all that's got to die. It's all got to die, and it's got to be thrown away before this rebirth happens. And then the rebirth is that we are more pure, more righteous, stronger than before. But that's the way God has created things. That we die, and we have to die, and then there's a harvest that is so much better than that one little thing that died. So sowing and reaping, this harvesting, it applies to disciples, to us. And the scriptures even say that we're to die daily, to take up our cross daily. It's not a physical death. It's a, what did you say, spiritual, emotional, psychological death. Like we just have to die. We have to die and we have to be born again. We have to go through that birth process in a new way. So that's a daily surrender of everything in order that the life that God has will then be our motivation will be invigorating, give life to us so that we wouldn't live our own lives, but we would live a life that God has for us, this new life. I'll go through a few examples here of how this applies to us. Hebrews 12 is one of my favorite chapters because it's so confounding. The author is writing to the Hebrew believers and is talking about their struggle against sinful people. And when you read through Hebrews, you see that they're being imprisoned, they're being beaten. We know through histories that they were having their businesses taken from them. And the writer of Hebrews says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So they were struggling against a fallen world, a sinful world, and they hadn't yet gotten to the point where they were being killed, but that actually was going to come at some point. And the writer says, and you've forgotten this word of encouragement, and when I read Hebrews 12, I was always, it sounded like that's not very encouraging because he said, all of these hardships are actually like discipline from a loving father. To me, an encouraging word would be, you need to get out from under that hard situation. God loves you the way you are, and he's got a victorious life for you. So get out of that and go on and live that life. But the encouraging word is, God's allowing these hardships to be a discipline to you. It's like a loving father disciplines his children. So in verse 10 of Hebrews 12, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. 
Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, I do want to say something here. In Hebrews 12, the word punishment is only used once, and the word discipline is used, I think, maybe seven or eight times. There's a difference between discipline and punishment, a big difference. And my shallow, silly example is combing my hair. I'm not punishing my hair if it's out of place. I'm just combing it to discipline it, to move it into the right order, the one that I want it in. God disciplines us to form us so that we'll share in His holiness, that we'll be more like Him. And He uses hard things in our lives to do that. And it's not punishment. It may feel like punishment, but it's not. He's just conforming us. He's using hard things. That's what the writer in Hebrews is saying. These really, really hard things that you're going through, God is using those so that you'll share in His holiness. And then look at this here in verse 11. Uh, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Actually, if you're not experiencing pain, you're not being disciplined. Could I say it that way? But you can see how that's an encouraging word. Like, oh, this is so hard. Oh, God is disciplining me so that I can share in His holiness. That actually is very encouraging. Later on, however, this discipline, these hardships, produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. For those who have been trained by it. So you can see how we die to ourselves. If we'll allow ourselves to be trained by difficulties, if we do that work now, then later there's a harvest of righteousness and peace. Righteousness only means doing the right things, living the right way. And of course, peace is an inward lack of striving. So here's an example. We sow in hard times, and if we'll let those things work their way through us, then we're going to reap a harvest of righteousness and peace. And a lot of times when I'm talking to people about the hard things they're going through, you know, a big part of the lesson is you persevere and you press on and you let God do what He's going to do through the hard things that you're facing because there is a harvest coming. If we try to dodge out from under these hard things, we're going to lose that harvest of righteousness and peace. God uses these hardships to discipline us, not to punish us, but to move us into these pathways of God. So we'll share in His holiness and ultimately gather in, reap a harvest of righteousness and peace. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed, and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. This is that rule of sowing and reaping. It applies in almost every area of life. If we sow sparingly, then we reap sparingly. Physically, that's true. If you put a little seed down, you're going to get a few plants back. But if you sow a lot, you're going to get a lot back. And Jesus is saying that's the way it is with life. That's the way it is with our gifts to other people. That's the way it is with our very life. If we give our life 
lavishly, if we really surrender, then we just get back so much more. We reap this harvest of righteousness. But that's the process to get to a harvest of righteousness, is actually doing it, actually planting in God's ways, sowing whatever we're doing generously, freely. James says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. You'll notice these three examples here are talking about a harvest of righteousness. It's a harvest of sanctification, of being purified, of acting rightly, of being the way God wants us to be. And that is a process of sowing and then reaping. And James is saying peacemakers need to sow in peace, whatever that means to you. Part of my understanding of a peacemaker is it's somebody who can stand with one foot in each camp and bring those two camps together in some way. Instead of taking sides and trying to bash the other side, it's saying, no, we're all going to, as much as we can, I'm going to try to stand shoulder to shoulder with you, and we're going to reconcile things that are at war with one another. That's a peacemaker. And we need to do that work peacefully. I can get on Facebook and see somebody say something. I get riled up. But that's not peace, right? I need to, gosh, I've got family members who are on one side of the political spectrum and dear friends on the other side. The way these social networks work and TV shows work is they want to keep your eyes on. And the way to do that is get you kind of riled up and us versus them. And we need to be peacemakers. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. But we've got to sow that seed in peace. And then there's a harvest of righteousness. We do the right thing. We're obedient to God. And there is naturally, necessarily a harvest, a good harvest, if we'll do things in God's way. Galatians 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. What's he mean God cannot be mocked? Part of it is he doesn't have favorites. We can't do something that's contrary to his will and then by the strength of our personality smile and he go, oh, that's okay. I know that you did this sinful thing, but, um, you know, it's okay. What Paul is saying, he can't be mocked like that. If we sow a seed to the sinful nature, then there's going to be destruction that comes from that. It's just the way it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. Now we're coming back to the theme of Easter Sunday. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. This is verse 40 in 1 Corinthians 15. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from stars in splendor. And so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. And the thing that struck me about this is that Jesus blazed the trail for us. That's what we're celebrating today, is that a few days prior to his resurrection, he was killed a terrible death. We were just talking about an article that talks about the physical suffering of Jesus, how terrible it was. And his body is placed in the earth in dishonor, broken and bloody and prone to rotting, decay. But the scriptures say God's not going to let his righteous one see decay. And so Jesus is raised from the dead. And that body that comes up is imperishable. It's raised in glory. It's raised in power. It's raised a spiritual body. When Jesus came out in this new body, it looked very much like the body he went into. As a matter of fact, it still had wounds. There was a big hole in its side where that spear had been thrust up under the ribs. But he wasn't bleeding. That's the thing that strikes me. He wasn't bleeding. He had these open wounds, but he wasn't bleeding anymore. He'd been bled out, the Lamb of God. But now he's alive, but he's not bleeding. So it's like, what is the life that invigorates his body at that point. Oh yeah, so there's the, yeah, the reminder of the bush on the mountain that's burning, but not burning, not being consumed by that fire. Amen. So that's what we have ahead of us. Isn't that beautiful? It's a physical body. We're going to be in bodies, but it's going to be of just a completely different order. It looks similar. But it will be a body that can just appear in a room like Jesus did, I guess. We'll be like him when we're raised. We have bodies that are perishable. We have bodies that are, um, we have a lot of gray hair in here. That's because our bodies are aging, right? We're oxidizing. You know that. You have to take antioxidants. And so our bodies oxidize, and that's rusting. That's what iron does. It rusts. It oxidizes. So we're just, you know, we're, these bodies are perishable. They're weak. They're just a natural body. But the way God has made things is that when he plants us in the ground, you know, we're going to be raised up with this new body. And Jesus has done that ahead of us, so we can see it as an example. He knows exactly what that's like because he's done it. We don't have a God who stands far off and says, if you just will act better, then I'll welcome you. We have a God who says, I'm going to do exactly, I'm going to take the path you guys are on. I'm going to do everything that I expect of you. I mean, talk about a leader. It's like a general at the front of the army saying, let's go. And he's right at the front of that, right at the front of the battle. And because he's done it, we don't ever have to taste death. That's one of the great messages of Easter. He tasted death. You remember there was a point when he said, there are some people here who will not taste death. He said that to the disciples that were there with him. Well, every one of them, their spirits left their bodies. But those that were his followers, really living by the Spirit, they didn't taste death. Jesus has done that for us. And that's a comfort. This promise that 
when our spirits leave our bodies, we continue on. We know who we are. And this is the promise of God, and it's the path that Jesus blazed for us. And, you know, that's the thing that I keep thinking about. This is the way God has created us to live. We choose death. We submit ourselves to death, to self, to our ego, so that we can reap a harvest of righteousness and peace. We can share in his divine nature. We can share in his holiness. That's what the scripture talks about. And we don't wait until our physical death. It's now. We have to be born again, and then that birth starts, and we're in eternal life now. I was speaking to some Romanian believers in England, and I said, when does eternal life start? When we die? No. Eternal life starts when we repent. Repent, believe, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, the birth process that God has for his people. So we're already in the flow of that, and the more we die now, the more righteousness and the harvest of peace we'll have. So that's what I wanted to share about. But I do want to end up without putting our focus on us. Today is the day where we look at what Jesus did, what he accomplished. We have to respond with thanksgiving. There is no room for us to brag or boast or think that we could have done it. Or It's all him. It is all him. Yeah, Easter is an amazing thing. It really is a remarkable thing. And all of creation changed in those few days. And on that, what we would call a Sunday morning, death was defeated. It really was defeated. And uh, we're on the victorious side of that historic event because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are, amen, you're the Lord of the harvest. Wow. God, we thank you so much that you took the initiative, that you took all of the steps necessary to bring us out of death and into life. God, you, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Lord, help us to be humble, humble, humble all the time, to keep our eyes on you, to trust in you. And God, today as we celebrate this resurrection, God, I pray that all of us will just have, amen, this life flowing through us and the joy of the Lord because it's really, really good. God, thank you so much. And Father, as we leave here, help us to take that resurrection life out to the people we meet. There are so many people that are lost. They don't even know they're dead, spiritually dead, and they're hungry for something, an abundant life. Help us, God, to be members of your body to bring that to the people you bring to us. And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus. He's our high priest. He's our king. He's our prophet, our Messiah. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Mm-hmm.